0: I'm Marty Moskoway and welcome to The Connection. A third of American adults report feelings of anxiety and depression. That's according to the latest U.S. Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey. The most common reaction to anxiety is to get rid of it to fight it, control it, medicate it, because it makes us feel so, well, anxious. The heart palpitations, the nausea, the sweaty palms, the tossing and turning at night, the self-doubts, the sense that something terrible is going to happen. But what if we embrace our anxiety instead of battle it? Our guest, psychologist David Rosmarin, says there is much that anxiety can teach us. It's a kind of early warning system that tells us there's a problem that needs our attention. Anxiety has helped us survive as a species. Rosmarin writes in his new book, Thriving with Anxiety, that embracing our anxiety can lead to growth, it can help us live with life's uncertainties, and even connect us with others. He's associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School and founder of Center for Anxiety. And David Rosmarin, nice to have you with us on The Connection.
1: It's my great pleasure and honor. Thanks for having me.
0: I love talking about anxiety. You know, I <laughs> I wonder if we need to make sure that everyone is all on the same page, because as I said in my introduction, for most of us, we want to rid ourselves of anxiety, and you're telling us to embrace it. Do we need a new definition for anxiety?
1: I don't think we need a new definition, but we definitely need to change our relationship with this normal human emotion that every human being experiences.
0: You describe it as a kind of misfire of the fight-or-flight system that that we all have. Help us understand that.
1: Sure. Now, that's the standard clinical definition, and it's one that I do believe is true. We all have a fear system. That's the fight-or-flight system, otherwise known as the fight-flight-or-freeze system, depending on what's going on. And that keeps us safe when there's an actual, tangible threat in front of us. So think about uh, in a modern example, I don't know, walking off a curb when you're using your cell phone, not realizing (laughs) that there's a car screaming towards you, you realize at the last second, you dart out of the way, you use your flight response, and you're protected. And that's great. That's a very healthy neurological, emotional thing. Anxiety is the same exact physiology. It's the same neurobiology which is involved. It's the same uh, uh, behaviors even But there's one small difference, which is that there's no actual car screaming towards you. There's no real threat. It's a misfire of the system. That's all.
0: Well, let me pick up on a couple of things there, because there are real threats in the world today. They're not just stepping off a curb, but there are high crime areas. There is war, as we well know. So anxiety, I mean, is that a different kind of anxiety when you're actually living with it?
1: No, if you are in a war zone, 100%. If you are in a area of very high crime and it's a high crime of time of day and you're alone and you're unarmed or there's no you know, 100%. That that is a real threat. I'm not saying that the only the only danger is is the uh, it's the sort of more common one, but no for sure, there are definitely other dangers lurking um, uh, in in the woodworks, 100%.
0: So responding That would be fear Okay, that, that would be fear. Yeah, and I don't want to get too caught up on words, but I think words are important as we as we talk about this. So, fear is is I guess what a kind of anxiety.
1: Well, uh, no, fear is a healthy response um, that we all have to a real threat, which might come to us from time to time. Um, anxiety is the same response, but there's no real threat present. So, if you're nervous about uh, crime in a low crime area, that would be anxiety. If you're super anxious about um, finances and if there's uncertainty there, we don't know whether there's a threat. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. That already takes it down to the level of not being threat, not being fear, but it's something that's sort of more in the in the mind's eye as opposed to a real tangible threat threat in front of you.
0: You write that uh, we are more anxious today than we were 100 years ago um and that 100 years ago there were there, there were the kind of discomforts and un- insecurities there was war you know several <laughs> wars that were fought during the 20th sure. century why the high level of anxiety today
1: yeah well i think what what's, what's happened is we have become anxious about our anxiety Because we are told over and over again that you have to feel good all the time, you have to look good all the time, you have to be performing at 110%, and that if you feel anxiety, you should go to a doctor and something's wrong with you, and there's a medical diagnosis and a medical issue here. And all of that, the minute I feel anxious now, with all of that in the background running in my mind, the anxiety actually is perceived as a threat and it triggers more adrenaline, and it triggers more epinephrine. And my body gets flooded the minute, the second that I have a low level, a bump in anxiety, which is totally normal. And it used to be perceived as totally normal. But today, we've created this impossible standard to always feel good. And that actually has created the anxiety epidemic, I believe.
0: So anxiety begets anxiety?
1: Yeah, if you're anxious, if 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 the moment I start to feel anxious, I interpret that as a threat. Something is wrong with me. I'm going to dump more adrenaline into my system, which is going to make my anxious and my my anxious feelings more substantial. And then I'm going to interpret that as definitely a threat, and then then I'm going to have even more adrenaline, and that cascade, that circle, that cycle is happening to almost everybody today.
0: Well, Is this a uniquely uh, American thing or maybe even a a Western thing in that we are a capitalist society, we focus on competition, people trying to get into Harvard, you know, your university there?
1: Yeah, it definitely is. And the statistics bear that out in terms of epidemiology. If you look at high-income countries, our rates of anxiety are twice that of middle-income countries. Mm -hmm. And then those are twice that, again, of low-income countries. And uh, if you look at other cultures even you know out in in the first world, if you will in high income countries outside of the United States, where people are more have more cultural permission to struggle um where they can still band together and they don't have to hide behind a mask of looking or feeling good all the time, well you see lower levels of suicidality, lower levels of people going on disability, lower levels of self injury, and lower levels of anxiety as well.
0: Huh. We're also a highly individualistic society. Does that feed our anxiety?
1: A 100%. Our relationships are so tenuous. Everybody feels so alone. And I think the primary reason is because, well, if I have a bad day or if I'm feeling anxious, I have this perceived need to hide it from other people um, in, in our culture. I think that's a very common way of thinking. As a result, You know, we actually divorce ourselves from our social connection, our social uh, resources when we need it the most. That's not the case in in many other cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, There is permission to struggle and people do band together and remain connected. And that's the way it, you know, it's a lot more functional.
0: Uh, I wonder, too, about technology. Uh, I mean, I have all my <laughs> devices. I don't have them with me. But, you know, I I, I like I think most people on the planet um, are pretty plugged into our devices. How much does that feed our anxiety?
1: Yeah, there's good a good research base on the social comparison effect, which is that everybody's comparing themselves to all the other glitzy, right. wonderful things you're seeing on social media. Right? right. And why is everyone feeling so great when I'm struggling? Uh, that kind of thing. But there's something more insidious, I think, about social media, which is that it actually interrupts the process of really bonding with others. Because if you're having what I call pixelated relationships, where everything's two dimensional, you can shut it off with the click of a button. And the minute things get tense, it's like, oh, sorry, you know, my video caved out. <laughs> like, really, what's happening is you're avoiding the discomfort which is inherent in all real relationships. I mean, relationships get messy, let's be real. And any relationship that means something, and it's going to actually give us a sense of closeness and decrease our loneliness, we're going to have to deal with challenging emotions at some point. And I think our allergy to anxiety and our... difficulties uh navigating that within an interpersonal context are a lethal combination.
0: Well, I'm also thinking about those pings, I mean it could be good news, it could be bad news, but but there's something about always being on <laughs> with our technology.
1: Yeah, literally on, right? And uh it is uh it's not healthy. We all need time to be able to regroup and to be able to um really connect.
0: Do you see anxiety and depression as related? I mentioned that in my introduction. Do you see them as kind of opposite sides of the same coin or curious about what you see as the relationship between those two?
1: Sure, sure. So the clinical science suggests that they're, they're not opposites. They're actually correlated. People who are more anxious are more likely to be depressed and also vice versa. And uh, one of the reasons is because when we feel anxious today, we see it as a failure on our part. We catastrophize, we get worried about it, but there's also this self-judgment. And that self-judgment um, can lead to depression. Um, conversely, when people have depression, it can be harder to function day to day, go to work, pay their bills. And then the mounting stress can certainly lead to um, anxiety symptoms. Um, so it's really bi-directional. Um, and uh where does the
0: self-judgment come from? I mean, is the uh, is the idea that somehow if we're feeling anxious that we have, we have failed?
1: Yeah. And I think uh, where does it come from is a great question. I think it's part of our culture that does not tolerate being out of control. Hmm. When things are out of control, when they're uncertain, when we don't know what's going to happen next, we freak out. And the judgment is, oh, no, I've lost control. I must have done something wrong if things aren't going well, if I'm not feeling good. And that, that's just not true. That's an unrealistic expectation for any human. Uh, we are all going to fail. If you're going to achieve great things, you are going to fail along the way. If you're going to be human, well, you're going to struggle emotionally at some point. And I think our need for control, which is a cultural uh derivative hmm. is uh, is is at the root of it. Yeah.
0: Well, let me quote you. For our listeners, you write, the primary purpose of worry is to avoid thinking about the fact that ultimately life is unpredictable and uncontrollable and worry gives us a false sense of control. Just to underscore what you said there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When people are like, where is my kids? Where is my kids? Or what's going to be with this uh, you know, diagnosis? Like is this is the test going to be okay? Is it not going to be okay? There's this sort of very shallow um cognitive process that actually is warding off really confronting the possibilities that we don't want to think about.
0: So thinking about it, which seems almost paradoxical, so thinking about or or investigating our own anxiety can actually make us feel less anxious.
1: Yes, but it's kind of like, you know, I'm a I'm a marathon runner and I do deep tissue massage, okay? It's it's tough, it's very painful, but the more sort of you actually have somebody pressing on that really pain point, <laughs> the more they're breaking apart those fibers, the better, the less pain ironically you have. Um, And anxiety is very similar Um, once we confront it, once we embrace it, once we allow it to wash over us and don't um, stop that, don't choke off or don't squelch that process, we become a lot more emotionally resilient. Um, And we're not doing this as a society, and I think we're buckling as a result.
0: Well, tell you what, let's take a very short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation. I want to pick up on that. And, yes, we are talking about anxiety today on The Connection. And, again, our guest is Dr. David Rossmarin. He is a psychologist, professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, and he's written a new book. It's called Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. We have much more to talk about after this very short break. We'll be back in just about a minute, so stay with us. Don't go away.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth,
0: long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moskowain talking with psychologist David Rosmarin, who says that rather than fighting anxiety, we need to embrace it. He's got a new book, Thriving with Anxiety. He's also founder of the Center for Anxiety. Let me pick up on what we were talking about right before the break. And you say it's really that, that sort of anxiety breeds anxiety. and We need to uh, be able to address it, have a different kind of relationship with it. But it's really hard when something feels so bad. I mean, the impulse to make it go away, either through medicine or just trying to avoid it or working as hard as you can not to feel anxious because it feels so bad.
1: That's definitely true. It's a valid point. And the first thing I tell audiences when I speak to them about the book is that nothing in the book will help you to become less anxious. Right. I am, I am done. Right. I'm done helping people to become less anxious. I've been doing that for 20 years. Right. And yes, I have some strategies as a clinical psychologist, but I think they get misused. I think that when people are so bent on getting rid of their anxiety, we inevitably, even if they're good strategies, end up using them in a maladaptive way that makes our anxiety worse. We are allergic to this normal human emotion and we need to change our our relationship with ourselves and with our anxiety. And that's really the first step. Sure, but
0: let's let's take that. Um changing our relationship to our anxiety, the kind of discomfort, the uncomfortable feeling of anxiety, even the physical feeling of anxiety. How do you suggest we address that?
1: Great. So, um you know, I do want to make something clear. In terms of uh very, very high levels of anxiety. Right. When people are struggling, you know, I worked in acute psychiatry uh within the Harvard Medical School system for the past 14 years. And when people are struggling with high levels of anxiety, let's say on a, on a zero to 10 scale, an eight or a nine, you know, we do need to use some sort of typically pharmacological process in order to take things down to a four or a five, maybe a six kind of range. But if the goal is to get it to a one or a two, People get disappointed and then they start to judge themselves. Oh no, what's wrong with me? Now, even with this medication, I can't function. My anxiety is still occurring. And to me, a level of a zero so actually zero doesn't occur. Nobody right. has zero anxiety. Right. So let's actually take that off the off the off the range. But a one, a two, or a three. I mean, maybe even a four. You know, that is a range that we have to learn to to deal with and to 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 function with, and actually to thrive with. And once we do, we can use this parlay these normal emotions into something I think very beautiful and positive for us.
0: So, picking up on that, so you're talking about, I guess, a healthy level of anxiety—a a one, two, three, maybe four. Um, what does that feel like? <laughs>
1: Uh, It definitely feels like, uh, for me, I'll I'll be autobiographical here, I'll tell you what it feels like for me. I get it in my chest. So uh, a feeling of pressure in my chest, breathing, a little bit of breathing constriction. Um, I often get a little bit of muscle tension. Um, I have an iron, like a you know, cast iron stomach. So it doesn't bother me there. <laughs> I'm very fortunate. Good for you. other people <laughs> yeah. might. Have, yeah, I'm lucky. But yeah. other people might have some stomach flutters. Um, my heart, like a, as a marathon runner, it's not like I'm usually fine and I'm used to feeling my heartbeat. So I'm desensitized to that. But for others, it might feel like a little bit of heart fluttering, a little bit of heart uh, activation, a higher heart rate, some sweating um, that can happen to me and to many others. Um, these kinds of things, um, at, like I said, the low, even a, encro- encroaching upon a medium level, are something that we have to expect. I mean, if we're pursuing a new goal in life, we're pursuing a new relationship. If we're you know, pushing beyond our own limits in athletics or in academics or in business or in anything, th- th- our systems are going to get revved up, and that doesn't mean that something's wrong with us or that we need medication to get that down to a zero. That's not realistic, and I think that's what's shifting the entire spectrum we see so many people at the six seven eight nine level it's it's uh, becoming intolerable
0: as you were describing your own anxiety. I was thinking about uh, my I have this sort of part anticipatory anxiety of flying and i I run through this scenario and absolutely believe before I book my flight that the plane is going to go down. I mean, I do fly yep. anyway uh, i don't like yep. it when it 's bumpy i 'm convinced you know something terrible is going to happen. But I try to sort of talk and I'd say to myself, you know, flying is one of the safest ways of getting from point A to point B. Um and I you know, so far so good, I, I would say. But it's it's such an interesting anticipatory anxiety.
1: Yeah. And um, you know, if it sounds like you're accepting it and you're not letting yeah. it get in the way of you are so that's already. But I feel you're, it. You're, yeah. you're already, Yeah. And it is uncomfortable. And to also validate that for yourself and to be like, okay, I'm flying and I know I'm going to be uncomfortable. So that day, you're probably not going to book, you know, three short haul flights. It's going to be one at a time. You're going to take a direct route. You're going to take a better airline that you're more comfortable with. You might pick yourself a better seat. And that self-compassion, that self-kind, I, which I hope you're practicing, as yeah. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And you might you might even call somebody when you land. You might not book a very intense meeting the day that you're flying or the day before you fly or, you know, um, not do it during uh, – uh, certain periods of the year where there's going to be a ton of extra traffic or it's going to be more complicated. You know, these are the kinds of ways that we're where you can use the anxiety um, to become more self-aware, more self-compassionate. But if, if your goal is just, I got to get rid of this, something's wrong with me, you're never going to learn what your triggers are and become more in tune with yourself.
0: But I think it's often interesting that anticipatory anxiety, sort of anticipating something that could happen, often doesn't happen.
1: That's true too. And there's uh there's definitely a letting go there. Um, you know, that human beings, uh, in general, um, I would say in our culture, especially, um, we like to predict the future, right? Don't we, we have all these metrics and all these devices and all these apps to tell us how, when it's going to rain exactly to the minute and when it's going to stop. And, and, uh, you know, there's a safety in some ways or a perceived safety in having that. and But in fact, I think when we let go and say, like, you know what, I really don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. It's anxiety provoking at first. But once we get over that, it's actually very freeing.
0: Do you think it's possible to turn anxiety slash fear into excitement? I'm thinking of people on roller coasters. I mean, that's scary, right? People sure. have anxiety about that. But we do it because it's, it's weirdly fun.
1: Yeah, so this is where I think youth in particular are struggling today because, especially in the realm of uh, self actualization, um, you know, I think it used to be the case that uh, in the good old days, as they say, people had a goal for their life and they would build towards it and they would face all sorts of uncertainty. And it would be exhilarating. Like, how do I actually navigate this impossible circumstance? You know, the financial pressure, the legal issues, the, you know, HR concerns of working with people, finding the right partners, finding the right locations, you know, these used to be challenges that people would take upon themselves and say, like, I'm going to persevere. It's going to be hard. I'm going to connect with others around it and sort of move towards achieving it, even though it felt really uncomfortable. Today, I think youth are terrified of failure. Uh. Um, So, yeah, to your point, I think it has uh, it's much bigger than roller coasters. I think it's people's identity.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously for young people, they're in the process of shaping their identity. I mean, it sounds like you're saying that we put inordinate pressure then on young people to, what, figure out their lives and make decisions about their future when, of course, we don't know what the future holds.
1: Yeah, and to do so perfectly and to do so without feeling any you know, any blip of anxiety along the way. I mean, th- these, are, these are unrealistic expectations for any human being.
0: As you are indicating, you know, new things, things that are new can cause anxiety, a new job, you know, a new school, a new neighborhood. Um, is it the newness that we just, we don't know where things are and that can create a, a level of anxiety?
1: Yeah. I think it's the uncertainty again. We don't know. And in a new situation, you have less knowledge or at least less perception, or at least I should say more realization that you don't know anything. In truth, we we rarely know anything. That's right. <laughs> really being honest, we, we don't know a lot. We have a lot less control than we like to believe day to day. Um, but I think in a new situation, we're more aware of it. And uh, it's the awareness without the tolerance that creates the anxiety.
0: Let me just quickly reintroduce who that's. Uh, David Rosmarin, he is a psychologist. He's got a new book, Thriving with Anxiety, which we're talking about. He's associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School and founder of the Center for Anxiety. You say an interesting thing in your book about this sort of age of information that we live in, that we're surrounded by all this data uh, Siri can tell us, you know, all the facts of, of the universe, that on one hand, yep. we know so much, but knowing so much also tells us that there's so much we do not know. Uh, walk us through this this sort of conflict that we're having with ourselves.
1: Sure. I think at the root of it is that people um, can't stand not having knowledge today. We have become uh, so blinded by the light of data of information that we are constantly showered with that when we don't know something, Oh my God, what did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? This must be a catastrophe because everyone else seems to know everything and it's all readily available right here. Right. And, you know, we interface with these machines all day that have way more knowledge and a lot faster processing speed than we ever will. And the disparity is so jarring at times. um, Yet, Coping with that is actually very human. Mm. I I think at the root of this, you know, the anxiety that we experience here is the opportunity to become more humble, to to become more accepting of that, which we don't know, and to learn to let go a little bit. I think we're so uptight because of that.
0: Well, and it's it's reframing things, but it also sounds like we have to give ourselves a break. We have to stop beating ourselves up.
1: Definitely. No question about that.
0: How do we do that?
1: Well, I think once we see anxiety as an opportunity to move forward, that's when people can make that leap. It's very hard to do this without concrete skills. Um, yeah, it's without concrete tools for actually how to turn anxiety into a benefit within one's life and to move forward.
0: Well, it sounds like those tools are, it's about how we talk to ourselves, what we tell ourselves.
1: That's part of it, um so I think our relationship with ourself is one group of tools there's also our relationship with others and I think during your intro you uh, mentioned this about how it can affect our relationships with others yeah if you think about the I'll ask you a question sure. if you think about the closest relationships you have, the ones that really make you feeling connected, loved ones where you're giving love, ones where you're really there's an uh, uh, an intimacy there, an emotional connection, a, a, a real human bonding. Typically, well, let me ask you. I'll just right. say I said I ask you, so I will. Are those the relationships that you have spoken the most or more about your struggles?
0: Yes, I mean it's my family. I mean, I you know yeah. I, don't, I don't want to you know keep this to myself. It's my family.
1: Yeah, and they know who you are, yes. they actually. really know you know the real you, your struggles, your pain points, the fact that you're not perfect. And when we allow ourselves to actually be imperfect and to struggle and to have anxiety as well as other difficult emotions, in the presence of others, it enhances our connection with them.
0: And I wonder, too, whether with adversity, whether adversity makes us um, – Colder to others, sort of less generous to others, or whether it opens up our heart.
1: I haven't seen that. I've actually seen quite the opposite. Um, I've worked with a number, uh, like clinically, over the last several years, with a lot of uh, folks who uh, were or are CEOs of large companies, have you know very great, uh, um, what do you call it. Uh, Uh, careers in uh, whether it's entertainment or, you know, these sorts of folks. And when they hit a roadblock or stumble, when they started to stumble in their careers, that actually made them more aware of their anxiety aware of their fallibility and actually a better um, spouse, a better parent, a better colleague, a better work uh, person to work with, actually more sensitive. Cause when we have our own experience of anxiety, typically we can parlay that into greater empathy um, and there's a bit of a myth of compassion collapse when yeah. people struggle. Yeah. And, uh, typically that's not how it plays out, uh, at least not in the literature that I've seen. When people are struggling, they often are more sensitive and like, you know what? I'm going to do that nice thing for someone else. Um, because I know how they're feeling because I have more of a palpable sense of what it's like to struggle.
0: I mean, it sounds like we, we can't live without anxiety, can we?
1: No, mm, I don't think or we're would supposed we want, to.
0: Yeah. Or would we even want to? <laughs>
1: I, now that's the question of my book, you know. <laughs> like once you know, once people start talking about this in real, t- tangible ways, it, I, I agree. I think. Uh, would you prefer to have a life that without compassion, without goals, without self awareness, without the opportunity to build resilience? Well, if if you want all that, then get rid of your anxiety. <laughs>
0: But and, – and I keep going back to uh, – again, because I think for a lot of people, including myself, you know, anxiety has all these negative connotations. So, again, it's, it's, it's how do you – how do you befriend yourself, perhaps, and even those emotions of anxiety so that it's, it does connect you to other people? Because I would think if people are, are anxious, they're very sort of focused on themselves uh, and how they feel. And that disconnects them from other people.
1: I think people who are – who, uh, I think when we experience anxiety, we are more likely to focus on ourselves and how we feel if we are judging ourselves for feeling that way. If we understand that this is an opportunity to build resilience, if we understand that this is a normal human emotion, if we see this as an opportunity to actually lower our guard and connect with other people – Or if we see this as part of the normal journey of a human being on the pathway to actualizing our potential, then why would that make it harder to connect with others? That actually opens us up to being a real human. That's the framework and the lens through which I believe we need to start looking at this emotion as opposed to seeing it as a biological disease, which it is not.
0: No, it's very much part of the the human condition. You also, though, write about something called systematic desensitization sure. as a way. I mean, this is a kind of a tool, I guess, as a way to sort of help reduce anxiety. Walk us through that.
1: It is a tool to reduce anxiety, but it's also a tool to grow in emotional strength, and I'll explain that. Mm-hmm. Firstly, since, uh, sy- systematic desensitization is a tool used by uh, in cognitive behavior therapy (CBT). Mm-hmm. Um, in the process known as exposure therapy. And exposure therapy is kind of what it sounds like. When people are afraid of something, well, they expose themselves to that situation. So in your case, I guess that would be flying. Right. Um, on a busy day, you know, in the, you know, in the trenches and picking a seat that you don't like in the middle or whatever it is and, and sort of building up the resilience to be able to do all of that. Um, and it's hard. Um, if you're talking about somebody else who has a, a fear of social situations, they might be socially anxious. They might be a little shy. Well, raising their hand in class, speaking up when someone's doing something that they don't like, you know, uh, becoming a little bit more assertive, um, making a suggestion to their boss, even approaching their boss. You know, these are the kinds of things that we would encourage people to do. If people have panic attacks, well, believe it or not, we actually encourage them to panic. In the office wow. to do things that would yep to have full full panic attacks right in the office in a controlled environment, and it's it is hard to watch it is hard to go it's extremely hard to go through, but what happens almost invariably, um, for at least for patients who complete treatment is that not only do they overcome their anxiety as you mentioned it's a tool to becoming less anxious, they actually become f- far more resilient emotionally to handle other stresses, even if they had nothing to do with their anxiety disorder in the first place.
0: Because we're almost up in a break here because, because you're there because or, or you, they made it to the other side.
1: Because they have taught themselves that it's okay to feel uncomfortable and I can come out all right and it's not going to destroy me. It can actually make me stronger.
0: I'll tell you what, another very short break, and then we'll get back to our guest uh, psychologist, David Rosmarin. And we are, yes, talking about anxiety, uh, a way of reframing anxiety. And again, he's got a new book we have been uh, referencing during the hour. It's called Thriving with Anxiety. And he founded a, a, a center up in uh, New England called Center for Anxiety. And he's also an associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. Much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia, and we are talking about anxiety today on the show. Millions of uh, Americans and people around the world have anxiety. It's among the most common mental illnesses in the U.S., and our guest, uh, Dr. Uh, David Rosmarin, believes that uh, it's perfectly natural. It's part of the human condition, and uh, we're talking about how to embrace anxiety, make it a part of your life, rather than something that you want to either medicate away or or fight off. And again, he's a professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School author of a new book, Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. Let me just pick up on people having panic attacks and using that, this this systematic desensitization, the idea of what slowly introducing oneself to something that may make us anxious, like public speaking or talking in class or things like that.
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to pick up on it. Um, yeah, yeah. You want me to explain it more? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, best yeah. Analogy I, the best analogy I can give you is going to the gym. And if you want to learn how to do arm curls, which let's say, I don't know, 200 pounds, you're probably going to have to start with maybe just the bar. And then maybe you'll add 10 pounds to each side. Maybe then you'll scale up to 20, 30 you know, fifty, and then eventually you can hit your goal. And building emotional resilience is the exact same. It takes practice. It takes going through pain. You know, if a person's in the gym, again, working up that two hundred pound arm curl, it's gonna hurt. And the more you, the more it hurts. And interestingly, the more it hurts physically, the more you're actually building muscle. Now, hmm. obviously, you could make it hurt too much, and you can strain the muscle. And we wouldn't want to do that in a clinic either. When it comes to emotions, sure, because you can, you can, you know. Uh, give somebody way too much, and like, whoa, that was way too intense. And and sometimes that happens, you know, in in the gym and also in the clinic. But um, you know, as long as you have a good working relationship with uh, your uh, p- patient or with your uh, athlete, you can um, help them to stay on track and to eventually hit their goals. Um, but this is what builds uh, resilience broadly, emotionally, physically, and. Probably other domains
0: I mentioned this uh, near the top of the show that that anxiety is a kind of alarm system. As you said, you know, if if your smoke detector goes off in your kitchen, there's probably something that needs to be addressed. Uh, is that a good way to help us just think about anxiety?
1: It is. Um, you know,'ll I'll add to that analogy. I would prefer to have a smoke system, a smoke alarm system that goes off a little too quickly <laughs> than one that doesn't go off at all and allows a uh, you know a deadly blaze to occur. So if you're having anxiety which is the false alarm um to the uh, you know uh, the the smoke alarm going off to a, a real fire would be the real alarm or fear. Um that's not necessarily a bad thing. It means that the wiring works, the mechanism, the smoke detection mechanism works, the batteries are operating. It means that there's actually good piping here and a good system. And anxiety teaches us the same thing um about ourselves. <laughs>
0: I wonder, too, and this is maybe a a broader question or even a more political question, if I can put it that way, but I think there's a sort of generalized anxiety feeling as if the people in charge of this world either don't know what they're doing or they don't care about what they're doing or they actually want to cause pain or hurt to other people. And I feel anxious about that. I'm sure a lot of other people do. I'm not in control of the world. Um, how, How do you see that?
1: Yeah, this is not an easy uh, area of anxiety to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, firstly, I fully agree with you. And I, by the way, I don't think they know what they're doing. <laughs> <It> doesn't feel <laughs> that I way. I think they don't. I think that's realistic. I don't think that's uh, you know uh, anxiety talking. I think that's that's fear in some ways. Because yeah. <laughs> it's re- it's really re- rooted in reality. In terms of nefarious intent, I think in case you know, in many cases there you have that too, or at least enough uh, delusional grandiosity that it's uh, you know sufficiently dangerous that it doesn't have us uh um doesn't breed equanimity and calm and solace let's just put it that way sure um you know at, at the end of the day i'll tell you the approach to this that i would take in the book and it's it's this is one of the harder chapters it's in the latter part of the book um about really accepting our limits and transcending them as humans yeah which is that there are i hate this is very hard to say but there are certain things within that have occurred throughout human history that have not on well and depending on where we are so to speak dropped into human history in in location our geolocation our time our how many years we have which are all governed by factors that none of us can control and none of us can even know um there are vicissitudes of life and of politics and of and there are these challenges and if but if we look throughout all of human history what we see is that ultimately we are not the first generation ever to deal with these types of challenges If anything, the challenges are governed by some checks and balances which have never been there before in human history. It seems that we have learned as a species um, from previous iterations of that history. And learning to let go today is not harder because of the genuine threat, I believe, because the genuine threat was worse during the Cuban Missile Crisis not too long ago. And during, during the, yeah, it was before my time. And during, during the Second World War, during the First World War, I mean, these were, you know, cataclysmic potential, you know, uh, uh, earth ending uh, events. Um, I don't believe that the actual risk is as high today, but I do believe that day to day we have less tolerance for being out of control because of the age in which we live.
0: The kind of illusion of control, right I mean yes, yeah. you know we know about germs now we didn't know about germs in the you know in the nineteenth century but but we know about germs and and so we can we can fix some things because of that
1: sometimes and other times sometimes. it takes uh, two or three years to get through a pandemic of uh, tiny little viruses spanning a couple nanometers right so we despite all the uh, incredible uh advances that we've seen, technology and medical care, even in politics and finance and economics, and you name the sector, communications, your sector, right? Sure. Um, we we still, at the end of the day, there are going to be factors that we don't know and that we can't control. And I think that we need to start embracing that more than we currently do.
0: You mentioned the pandemic, and I wanted to ask you about that. Um, I mean, people sure. are still getting COVID, but not at the levels that they were a couple of years ago. Um, and there was, you know, anxiety around the world because in the beginning we did not know what we were dealing with. What have we learned, do you think, as a result of of living through the pandemic, at least so far?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you say that you think the anxiety was because we didn't know. I, I don't know if I, I think that's, that's true, but I think it's more because we were we were, we weren't able to tolerate not knowing. Mm. And you know, in previous pandemics, I think it was more accepted and understood like, okay, like this is what happens, and this is sort of from time to time these sorts of things and, and events do occur. Um, but the pandemic occurred this time in a digital age, in the midst, at least for our culture of uh, cultural trends of being in control all the time or perceiving to be in control all the time, perceiving to have this knowledge all the time, as opposed to being more humble and more human, mm. um, which, and I think that acceptance was lacking. And, and I do think it's grown. I actually have seen some post-COVID growth in terms of emotional uh, um um, emotional resilience uh, for many people, not for all, but for, for many people.
0: Growth how? I mean, how, how were some people able to grow through or as a result of the pandemic?
1: Well, I think that there's more of an acceptance today that, you know, there are things that are out of our control. There are things that we cannot know. And we sort of have to, have to learn the hard way that to learn, to adapt to that reality, that things are more challenging. And for people who have come to a place of acceptance around that and even parlayed their anxiety in a positive way to create more communal growth, com- more com- more uh, camaraderie, to be able to speak about that in an open way with their loved ones, to be more real. I mean, you're seeing it on social media with yeah. um, people becoming more open about their struggles. Look at Simone Biles, which she did several years ago. Um, Molly Seidel, the, the famous marathoner, she um, has come... There are many examples of people um who have come out and spoken more openly and created communities and connection around the fact that they've struggled. Uh, we didn't see that before the pandemic, not as much.
0: Well, that's that's I mean that's I guess if there is an upside, um that certainly is one of them. One of the things you say about anxious people is they tend to have higher IQs. I realize that's a really broad statement, but what is that <laughs> yeah. what, what does that mean?
1: Well, let me ask let me put it this way. You know, firstly that statistic is um Yes, it is a broad statement, and the the effect sizes aren't great. So, people, you know, anxiety cuts across the board. Sure. But it does illustrate a point, and and this is kind of the point. How many high achieving people do you know who are anxious? Uh,
0: Just doing my little (laughs) memory bank. Um, uh, uh, Probably a fair amount of, I mean, I would say a certain level of anxiety.
1: Of course. Almost all high achievers have, have. Significant amounts of anxiety, right? Your, yourself included. I, everywhere, else, everybody who's achieving something at a at a at a high level is going to face anxiety. I've seen this especially with comedians, by the way. Uh-huh. It's almost funny. It's uh-huh. almost comical because because you have to be on. You got to be right. on all the time. You stand up in front of a group of people. You have your material prepared, and invariably, fifty percent of it is going to be off the cuff. So, you need to have a certain amount of anxiety in order to be funny, off the cuff, be aware of everything that's going on, read your audience. Um, So it's uh, almost comical.
0: Well, and I'm also thinking of, you know, things like stage fright. I've interviewed enough actors that that many of them, they're absolutely terrified before they step foot on that stage because of of all the things that they have to do.
1: Sure. They're they're, uh, NBA players who will vomit before every game.
0: (laughs) For that same reason, right?
1: Yeah, and it's not a bad thing. You know what? What stops it from becoming an anxiety disorder is when they say, oh, "Of course, I'm nervous. I'm going to be playing basketball in front of you know twenty, thirty thousand live fans, and another half a million people are going to be watching every move I make. If I wasn't anxious, then something would be wrong with me." And that is such a healthy approach to this normal emotion.
0: I have to give a shout out to our engineer, Al Banks. He whispered in my ear. He said about. Well, what about imagination and anxiety? People with big imaginations, are they more likely to be anxious because they they think about everything, isn't it?
1: That's a great question. You know, more creativity. I can see how it can spawn the bringing creativity into reality. So I think anxiety occurs more when people are sort of grinding away at trying to make something real. You're going to hit pressures. You're going to hit headwinds. You're going to hit complications. There's going to be stuff that's going to rev your system up. So I think it's more where the rubber meets the road that you have that friction, um, which creates anxiety, as opposed to sort of more heady, um, pontificating, Mm -hmm. you know... Um, creativity at a at a at a at a ladder, but at a at a latent level, but at at the real level, like creativity in the arts. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, like Los Angeles would be a very fruitful ground for me to open my next clinic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> for that very reason, right? Hollywood. Yeah, right? exactly.
1: Yeah, Hollywood is for sure.
0: <laughs> well, we're in the holiday season, and for some people, mm-hmm. this is a season of anxiety.
1: It sure is for a number of reasons, which are actually um, makes sense um people are reconnecting with family members that can be complicated and you're going to get questions about your career and your education and you know your relationships and kind of get getting grilled and being evaluated and under the gun and uh those can be unpleasant people's bills are mounting so that increases people's stress which can lead to anxiety symptoms um and also um it can be harder to uh manage self-care schedules People sometimes feel overloaded at work because they're taking off time and then the expectations are usually to maintain their levels of productivity. So for all of these usual suspects and probably a couple more, um, it definitely can make us an anxious uh. Group.
0: Do you think there's also pressure to be joyful and happy? <laughs> and celebratory? That's, a great, that's
1: a great point. I'm glad you reminded me about that. Um, this time of year, and we also see it during the summer where anxiety hits a peak, in my experience, uh, with our clinics. We see the, the hardest cases come in in, Octo- in, sorry, in uh, July and August, uh-huh. and then also in November and December. And the reason, thank you for reminding me about this, sure. the disparity between how we think we should feel and how we actually feel is greatest during those two periods of the year.
0: You mentioned the Which word... Ampl- no, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: No, that ampl- that amplifies the distress okay. that we experience because there's this there's this delta. There's this, there's this uh, difference between I should be feeling okay, and then I'm going to judge myself more when I don't feel okay.
0: A kind of a mismatch. You mentioned the word right. stress. We haven't really talked about that. And I think for a lot of people, they think of stress and anxiety as going hand in hand. You see it slightly differently.
1: Yeah, stress is related to anxiety because the symptoms are the same. You got the heart palpitations, you got the sweating, you got the muscle tension, you got the, you know, the stomach uh, upset for many people. Um but it's a little bit different. Stress is rather simple actually. It's when people have too many demands and they have not enough resources to meet those demands. And uh like a simple analogy is if you're 20 minutes away from an appointment um and the appointment starts in 3 minutes, well then you have 17 minutes of stress, so to speak. Right. But that's the case for financial resources, for time, for re- emotional resources, things that are more complex. Uh, but nevertheless, there's this disparity or this difference between our resources on the one hand and our demands on the other. And once we reset that balance and recalibrate and the stress is resolved or the stress sore. Is was redu- is reduced. Usually, the physical stress gets uh, gets uh, eliminated or, or reduced to a point. Anxiety is not like that. Um, even if you recalibrate and rebalance, you might still have anxiety. Um, so that's that's why they are different from each other.
0: Does sleep affect anxiety?
1: Absolutely. If I have in many ways, if I have one shot at helping somebody with anxiety. Especially if it's more chronic anxiety and worry, like the worry warts, it's going to be to help them to, uh, to regulate their sleep, um, to, to get eight hours of sleep a night for two weeks if they can. Obviously, oh. some people have insomnia as well as anxiety, and then that requires more discussion. You know, I'm not sugarcoating it. It can be complicated and take a little time. But working towards that goal methodically, it's one of the, one of the best strategies,
0: You've been studying anxiety for a, a while now, for years now. Are you, are you a, lex- a less anxious person <laughs> in a sense practice what you preach?
1: Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> I, okay. I have, <laughs> I have anxiety just like everybody else. But there is one difference, okay. which is that now when I feel anxious, I have my toolkit. I've got a great toolkit. Um, and um, I typically use it. Um, it's, it's rare that I'll go more than 24 hours feeling reasonably anxious without resorting to my Mm -hmm. strategies. And those usually not only take me out of a state of anxiety, but actually move things in a positive direction almost all the time.
0: And we were talking about some of those strategies during the hour today. Um, Dr. David Ross-Marin, thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection.
1: Thank you for having me. What a pleasure.
0: A pleasure for us as well. Talking about anxiety. His book is Thriving with Anxiety Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. Well, thanks for joining us today on The Connection. Every week we explore different aspects of what makes us human and unique. You can email us at Connection at whyy.org. Tell us what you want us to cover. You can check out our website, whyy.orgslash theconnection. You can sign up for our newsletter and you can download a podcast of the show wherever you get your show. And you can follow us on Instagram and find us on Facebook. Debbie Builder and Paige Murray Bessler produce the show. Today's engineer, Al Banks. I'm Marty Moskowin. Thank you so much for joining us.